0: Hi, welcome to Interviews Podcast. I am passionate about business. I used to run businesses for others before launching my own. And I have always asked myself one key question. What is the secret recipe to properly structure and successfully run a business? So I am on a quest to find out through insightful conversations with entrepreneurs all around the world. Follow me on my journey to crack the entrepreneurship code. Interviews is sponsored by Bertoli Digital, a Wix website agency built for startups, individuals and SMEs. Bertoli Digital is also Finland's first certified Wix expert and Wix partner agency. 1% of all the agency's project revenue go to Global Footprint Network to help change how the world manages its natural resources and respond to climate change. If you want to know more, www.bertolidigital.com or contact at www.bertolidigital.com. This is Interviews. Today, I am with Richard Burrage, managing partner of Simigo, operating in Vietnam and Indonesia. Hi, Richard. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Laurel all right so let's start can you just tell us a little bit about your journey
1: my career i guess started in hong kong working for a regional consulting market research business
2: mm-hmm. and
1: i used to be very kindly sent into lovely um geographies to go and uh, uncover um market entry strategies, market landscapes, competitive environments um, to help clients think about how they might um, perform better in those markets or certainly enter those markets. So this was in the early 90s out of Hong Kong. So my first venture was go and forecast demand for white goods in India. Here's some money, literally cash. Um, uh, Here's a plane ticket. Uh, Come back in three months when you're done. and my second one was, uh, uh, I think it was Japan, Tokyo, go and understand what we do to get, uh, essentially mama to promote a Scottish whiskey in, uh, Japanese bars, you know, and then the third one was Taiwan and, and it went on, but it was, of course, it was very, you know, back in those days, you didn't have the infrastructure of multinational agencies and, um, able to help people. Um, so it was really how things were done. It was roll your sleeves up, go Mm -hmm. have a look, find some local partners to work with. Um, you know, and it was very outcome driven come back with results. A little bit cowboys when you look back at it, but really that's how you sort of, you know, you learn the trade of what I do today. Um, and, um, a lot of valuable life lessons learned in that process and a hell of a lot of fun had. So, um, Ultimately, that journey took me to Vietnam with a mm-hmm. desire to start up my own business. Um, I worked for a large global company for a while. Um, and then when there was some merger activity going on and the company I was running was acquired, um, I then decided to set up on my own. That was a perfect pivot timing point um, to uh, say, okay, well, I'm going to set up on my own now. And the costs of entry were very low back then, so it was relatively easy in hindsight to do. Uh, I think right. I started with thirty staff. It wasn't um, it wasn't me starting as a one man band. So um, you know we were up and running very quickly, um, and that you know that went well. And demand meant that I needed to look for outsourcing options. So I opened a operation BPO type operation in India, uh, and then it just kept on going from there. So just um, Uh, kept on trying to grow with the marketplace, really.
0: Okay, Uh, I'll come back to that, you know, what happened? What were the triggers to uh, set up your um, company? But first, let me ask you, why did you move to Asia?
1: So (laughs) I have an uncle who is a uh, or or was a professor. He's still around, but he's retired. He was a professor at uh, LSE, which is the university in London. And he was talking to his son and suggesting that his son uh, might enjoy an experience of going to Japan, where he would spend one semester a year at a a university in Tokyo. Um, Because there were, you know, friends there that had a hotel up in the mountains and maybe it would be a good experience. And if you go back to that time, this was early 1990, 1991, Mm. Uh, you know, Japanese management style was all sort of, I mean, we were being taught about it at university. Um, But my cousin decided he'd rather stay at home. So I sort of piped up in the background and said, well, I'd love to go uh, without really (laughs) giving much much thought or consideration to it, but it sounded like an adventure. Uh, And that's how it happened. So I went for initially for, um, uh, uh, I don't remember what it was, I think initially for a three-month plan to sort of work and get some experience in this um, gentleman's hotel up in the, in the mountains. Um, you know, that's where I experienced my first earthquake. Um, really? I experienced a lot of firsts on that trip. <laughs> um, some of which I could say on a, on a podcast, some I couldn't. Um, but I had a lot of fun, and um, I then traveled around Japan, and then kept on traveling and moving, um, and working from, you know, worked in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in, in Australia, in New Zealand um ended up back in hong kong and eventually that's when i started working in the field i'm in now right and then you have never left (laughs) yeah i said to my parents i'll be gone for three months Uh, i think it took me (laughs) three years to go and say hello and it was literally to go and say hello and then straight back again so i I was just you know it's that youthful need for adventure and every Mm -hmm. every place i went to was fascinating to watch people watch and different cultures and even on my way to japan i spent I think I spent six weeks in India as my first stop, which of course was just terrifying in many ways as a young mm. man straight out of university but fascinating in so many others mm. um, again from just walking and people watching and experiencing new things so um, a curious mind yes. and that keeps me in, the in in the industry I'm in today so
0: so when did you realize you wanted to be an entrepreneur? What happened? So the, the
1: man uh, I worked for in Hong Kong was a New Zealander. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a university professor on one hand, but he was also ran his market research company on another. Um, and he had a, you know, a very inspiring story. He was a wonderful teacher and mentor. Um, And I saw what he'd done with his life in Hong Kong. So when I met him, he'd been in Hong Kong already 25 years. So he had uh, hundreds of stories to tell. And there wasn't a a city in Asia that he hadn't spent time in. So um, he was, I guess, my inspiration. And at that point, I thought, well, I would love to do something similar. But Hong Kong was a very expensive place to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, after my first assignment into Vietnam... I thought, well, wow, this is a place where there, is, there isn't any anybody doing um, what we do. In fact, we had to work back then with the Ministry of Culture and Information to help us organize um, you know, data collection and field work and interviewing and that sort of thing. And I just thought, what, an, what a wonderful place. And Wouldn't this be a wonderful opportunity where, one, I wouldn't have too much competition, cost of entry would be low, uh, and I could hopefully come up and start my own venture. So, that was, um. he was really my inspiration and in his story. Mm.
0: And so you open up your business, I think, like 18 years ago, something like this. Mm. Yes. And I'm pretty sure a lot of things have, have happened uh, during that time. Vietnam has changed, has changed a lot. Uh, for example, Indonesia, Indonesia too. There's way more competition now, for example. What do you see? The, the what are the, the, the big changes what have been the big changes that you have experienced throughout your experience as an entrepreneur
1: good question i think the um the most significant change in hindsight has been when the the client side of the business became it felt like it was overnight. Of course, it was a gradual build, but the change was very, felt very rapid. It was about 10 years ago when really prior to that, foreign multinational companies were just far better at marketing and, and penetrating markets and finding opportunities. And then suddenly the skill base and the capability of Vietnamese nationals and the firms, uh, Vietnamese local firms, Um, changed to a point that they became far more agile,
2: Mm. far
1: more responsive to market demand, and far more sophisticated in their approach to the market. Um, They'd learned, and they'd learned really fast, uh, and they adapted very quickly. um, And then they became really, um, they made international firms look awfully slow in their decision-making and their route to market and their time to launch a new product and so forth. So that happened, I would say, probably in about, probably just after the global uh, economic crisis of 2008, Mm -hmm. Um, and that was maybe a pivot point where there was just a dramatic shift in the marketplace.
0: So what was the impact on your business? How did you adapt?
1: Well, at that time, because of the global financial crisis, you suddenly had far more localization of roles, so a lot of... um, Mm -hmm. Uh, experienced people who were expatriates were, were you know, probably relocated home um, and you had far more localization of senior roles. So that meant mm-hmm. the way the agency had to respond changed and it meant that the, the caliber of my top tier and middle management tier in the agency had to step up and be able to um, consult and develop business um, with, with their Vietnamese counterparts on the client side and that was quite a rapid rapid change and it just it meant a change in my personal role it also went meant a change in the way that the agency spoke to the market
2: mm-hmm. you were
1: no longer you were no longer guiding somebody through the culture of Vietnam because of well, the people you were speaking to um, obviously were the culture mm-hmm. represented the culture and didn't need teaching about the cultural pitfalls and and the lights they needed um you know, far more commercial um, opportunities being unraveled for them, and, and agility in, in the way they could approach that.
0: Right. And so, what about you on a personal on a personal level as an entrepreneur? What has changed over this those eighteen years?
1: I'm not sure whether I'd put it to the 18 years of a market development or to my own life stage. So of course, uh, over the period of time, you know, when I started the business, I had a newborn. Um, she's now just turned 18, mm. uh, a couple of months back. So you can imagine the various uh, life stages that involved, that involved, uh, I think I was married, you know, maybe, maybe three to six months before my first child was born. I'll let you do the math on that. Um, but then, um, you know, more children to follow and, and just I think one's priorities in life and how you spend your life change quite dramatically as you move through different life stages. Um, and also one's energy changes quite dramatically and one's um, assertiveness changes quite dramatically with life stage. So I think, you know, as the market changes and my own um, personal energy levels, assertiveness change, uh, excitement around certain things change, um, it becomes much more, I guess, a role of um, trying to develop and push others up around you. Mm. Um, and also I think it remains challenging in to remain excited. I, I don't. I never planned on being where I am for so long or necessarily I never looked at when I – I never really planned well ahead when I started the business thinking, well, I want to own this business in 20 years' time. I also didn't mm. say – but I wouldn't own it in 20 years' time. I never really thought about it. Um, so you have to, for me, I've had to think long and hard about how I keep myself challenged. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, this morning I read a proposal which would have been largely the same, except the markets changed as a proposal I would have written 18 years ago. So that's not so mentally stimulating mm. uh, or challenging. Um, and I would have uh, this afternoon reviewed somebody's work, which would have been not too dissimilar from reviewing somebody's work 18 years ago. Um, so it's, it's how you keep yourself challenged um, and stimulated. Uh, it's really at work is key. I think right. So I did a little bit of that through market expansion and product expansion to keep, keep active and then other ventures outside of uh, Simigo. But um, it's, it's not easy. It's uh it requires a bit, good business coach, Laurent, to help you along that path.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk, let's talk about that because you and I have been working together. Mm-hmm. Um, how has coaching helped you?
1: Well, I think when you're an entrepreneur, I, I know as an entrepreneur, it's really very hard to have a, um, a peer group who can tell you that you're wrong. Mm. Or that you're being foolish, or that your priorities aren't set, or to remind you of some fundamental approaches that you know that just no one's no one's uh, barking at you and telling you um, you know that there's a reason for certain disciplines that that should be followed. Um, because your the sounding board you have are generally people who work for you or think that it's you know particularly culturally. They might think um, that, it, that it's insensitive to tell you that you're wrong um, or not good for their own career prospects to tell you that you're wrong. So you mm-hmm. get, you get, it's very hard to get a team of people around you who will say, no, I, don't, I disagree with you. So to have a business coach that you can bounce ideas off, who can be objective um, and take a, you know, a little bit more of a, a helicopter view and um, challenge you, uh, and keep challenging you and not let you get away with, well, I'll come back to that next week, um, is, is absolutely critical. I, I belong to a, an organization called um, EO, which is really a group of entrepreneurs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I was describing to some of those people recently that the value that I get from just spending an hour with a coach is phenomenal in comparison with a lot of resources that EO provides. Um, because it is somebody telling telling me that i 'm wrong or that i 'm maybe wrong 's a wrong word, but there 's another path there 's another way and certain things I should be doing um, and that uh, really that 's invaluable because well my children won 't tell me my wife won 't tell me believe it mm-hmm. or not um, uh, and my staff won 't tell me that, so to have a third party um, ask the right questions and pose the right challenges is um, it's phenomenal, honestly.
0: Wow, that's really nice. Really nice to hear. But it's interesting because you also mentioned earlier on in the conversation that you had a mentor. How important? Yes. How important was that mentor for you?
1: Um, well, that meant, when I say it was a mentor, he was my he was my boss um, right. in Hong Kong, and he remains a friend to this day. And and um, he was extremely helpful, not only from. Uh, teaching me what I knew about the trade that I have today, but also learning from his actions, uh, his integrity, uh, his experiences, but also asking for personal advice as a, um, you know, uh, a an immigrant in a, in a foreign country that mm. gets labeled uh, uh, an expatriate, uh, but essentially an immigrant in a foreign country and, and weaving one's life through that and one's business life through that.
0: So I would like to talk a little bit now about the lessons you've learned throughout your entrepreneurship journey. And I know you have an incredible story to tell. What is the biggest mistake you ever made?
1: (laughs) Okay, so in market (laughs) research, we tend to do, um, you know, for some of the the consumer product goods companies, we tend to do um, sort of continuous tracking of their of their in-market performance, so their brand performance. And uh, we look at, you know, from advertising, from promotions, from awareness, from the equity of the brand, and all these sort of metrics that help uh, direct the, the path that they should be following and prioritise the actions that these companies have. And for one, I'll leave the company rather nameless, but it, it wouldn't take a, um, too much thought to think about it. Is they're one of the world's largest consumer product goods companies who work across multiple categories. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we were running these, these studies for, I think, seven of their categories. And one of my managers came to me and said, mm, we have a problem with this category. There's a, uh, a formula in it that we've had wrong for the last four years, which has made every recommendation we've given this category to this company and its brand, trade, and marketing teams wrong. Um, you know, we've been focusing here and telling them to focus here and really actually they needed to be focusing slightly to the left, as it were. The legal implications of that were rather large because as a minimum they could have um, uh, demanded a, uh, a repayment for all the time they, they'd spent um, and all the monies they'd spent. Um, but also they could have taken it further and said, well, there's a loss of business here. You know, because our actions have been misplaced. Uh, But anyway, so I had to um, go and sit in front of the uh, director for that category and their marketing teams. And um, I called the meeting and uh, I went, they didn't know what it was about. And uh, I explained and showed them what we've been showing them over the last four years. I explained the error and then I explained what we should have shown them over the last four years. (laughs) Um, and what the the corrected uh, performance would have looked like. Um, So it was a very humbling experience. Yeah, Um, I guess. And there was complete complete silence in the room. I mean, basically, just sort of said to the team of 12 that actually everything you've been doing, we've been telling you to do, uh, we've sort of misdirected you, and there's been a waste of time almost. Um, So the the category director asked me to leave the room while they discussed the... um, uh, the circumstances, uh, and then ultimately they called us back in. I don't know; it was a, it, it felt like an hour or so. It probably was ten minutes later, uh, <laughs> and they thanked us actually, and they said, "Well, actually, we cannot believe you've told us this. We 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 can't believe any agency would have told us this um, because you could have just adjusted it slightly over the next three periods and." and then set it on on the correct course without ever raising this as an issue. Um, So they thanked me for telling them, Mm. uh, which was nice. And then they um, basically said, we're not going to take this any further. Um, We appreciate your integrity, and we appreciate you telling us. Um, You've reassured us that you've checked the other categories that we're doing, the other six studies. They're all fine, so uh, we will continue, and we won't be mentioning this again. And we suggest that you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) which was very kind of them uh, and very understanding of them and
0: yes and then life went on wow this is this is just incredible I mean I can't imagine how you were feeling
1: (laughs) yeah I was expecting far worse I've got to say but I mean at a time there really wasn't to my mind there really wasn't any other alternate behavior because um well it, well it was wrong <laughs> we've made a mistake we needed to fess up to that mistake and, and correct it so
0: no, but that, that is that is amazing on your on your side the level of integrity you showed but also on their side the level also same level of integrity that you know, recognizing that it was a very difficult moment for you
1: and yeah the, and, and i'm sure for them i mean i'm sure that you know it would have created a not only lost time, but an awful lot of work to re-correct their um, mm. courses of action. But um, yeah, no, it was very kind of them to be understanding. Um, you know, and I think when you, when, when you have a partnership relationship with somebody, which we did with that business, mm. um, in hindsight, well, that, that's a wonderful thing because you have that strength of relationship where you can embrace and collaborate and, and get through issues together. Of course, when you have relationships where you are merely a supplier, mm.
2: and not
1: considered a partner, then I think that conversation would have probably been passed over to the legal department. But um, luckily, um, this was some time ago, this was a long time ago actually, but they were the days where really clients were much more partners than, than perhaps supplier relationships, which um, is more, more common in, in this day and age.
0: Well, so you think you've seen a change in how clients think, treat yeah. you? Okay.
1: Yeah, it's I think because their own internal department company cultures have changed to one of um, you know, global management, global procurement, um, procurement policies and compliance issues for them. Um, that make them forget that there's a human at the other end of the agency. And mm. livelihoods at the other end of the agency and really reduce relationships into supplier uh, a supplier model rather than a partner model it's a bit of a shame because everyone loses out from um the quality of work the um mm. the energy and effort that i think people put into it um and the learning that they could be having from a much stronger partnership but um it's the way of the world unfortunately maybe Mm. it'll come back around but um yes
0: would you say this is your main challenge at the moment
1: my main challenge at the moment is making sure there's enough cash in the in the bank to get through the um sort of pandemic period Mm. um so no i mean it's just a new reality um or, or a reality that's become very gradual we've sort of seen it with start with global cpg companies and then progress through different um, verticals, different industries. As that approach has started to change, it's it's the same idea as saying, well, um, you know, we'll pay for the service in in, a, in an appropriate time, given the hours and the efforts to, that gets put into it. To turning around, and saying, well, we'd like to pay you in 120 days after you finish. Thank you very much. It, it's it's the dehumanization of. Um, agency-client relationships that tend to happen through global companies and procurement policies and supplier policies, so.
0: Mm. But what can you do to tackle that issue?
1: Well, you can be a very good negotiator, but at a certain point, um, even people who, when you see the change happen in an organization and you have a long-term relationship with the marketing team of that organization, um, it, it even seemingly, even if they want you, there's not a lot they can fight against when it's some sort of procurement-led policy. So you either have to say, well, we're not going to be able to work with this business or um, you have to suck it up. Mm. Uh, you know, really, I mean, I've, in in the UK, there's been legislator, legislation introduced to prevent it from happening. But, um, uh, you know, on fair business terms. Um, in payment terms, particularly, mm. um, but it's going to be a long time before this part of the world sees uh, those sort of legislative um, solutions.
0: So you either change your client
1: mix, or you, uh, or you, uh, you get into a new cycle where
0: you you have to work on those sort of terms. What are you the most proud of?
1: It it, it normally takes someone else to remind me of what I might have accomplished because. For me, I generally look at things as I, (laughs) why haven't I done that yet? Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, if I can can take the time to reflect and, okay, you know, there probably aren't too many people in the world who have built businesses in foreign markets and multiple markets uh, and survived um, and survived through some incredible times, including the current times. Um, so, you know, I'm proud of that. I think what makes me proud on a day-to-day basis is more, um, it, it's either client successes, so client feeding back to the team on successes or team member successes. You know, I can look at, um, I have a lady who's, when I first met her was a receptionist who's, uh, you know, runs a team of analysts today. So, um, you know, when you look at people like that and how far they've come and that's, mm. uh, that's pretty rewarding. Um, and then, uh, you know, occasionally you get, I get the oddest, oddest email out of the blue. I had one at the end of the last year from uh, a member of staff. And I have to be frank. I had to look up who she was. But she migrated to, um, sorry, emigrated to Canada. Mm. And is now running a health clinic. And she wrote me a letter to say thank you because everything she learned working with us, she was applying uh in her in her new role and it was you know it was her time at simigo that taught her all these um fundamentally important um management issues you know out of the blue yeah. i mean that's a, you know you look you read that you get that on a tuesday morning well that makes your day because yep. it wasn't something you expected and um was lovely to hear and lovely to hear that somebody's life has changed and uh, so positively
0: yeah and that is exactly the opposite of what we were talking about before like with this the dehumanization of the the big corporate absolutely sure sure wow. that's a great story too if you find yourself today and you hire the best candidate in the world to replace you what would he or she do differently
1: I would say they probably need a far better manager, director, whatever the right term is, but those management assets and do far less of the actual doing. I still enjoy doing. Mm. So I that doesn't help me manage. So if I've spent four hours today reviewing somebody's work or, editing it or directing it to them, or I've spent time writing a proposal. I've got to think if I really sit back and think about it, that I'd be far better off teaching somebody else and mentoring or coaching someone else through that process rather than doing it myself. But I like doing it. (laughs) 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 I gain pleasure from doing it. I I gain less pleasure from sitting back and managing and not actually Mm. Feeling like I produce anything, so um, you know I have a um, a managing director in my Jakarta office who is far better at me than managing mm. uh, and delegating and making sure that the team that she has under her produces what they they need to do and maintains a uh, happy clients um, and and you know that's. I look at her and think, "Wow, that's brilliant." (laughs) I wish I could do that. So I'd probably probably ask her to to take over both markets. But um, yes, uh, far less doing um, and far more planning and managing and delegating, managing essentially. Yes.
0: What do you want to take your business next? What's the big dream?
1: We've grown and shrunk as a business, so you know we we've. um, Grown into new markets and shrunk out of them, um, you know. So there's been the markets that we've been in, for example, Singapore, that we pulled out of. Um, we've grown in that we've had double the number of staff at some points that we've had that we've had today. Um, so we've grown and shrunk, but I've always the business has always grown and shrunk, shrunk. Sorry, with the same proportion percentage of overheads. Mm -hmm. So I I would like to find going forward a way of scaling the business whilst not maintaining the same proportion of overhead. So I'd like to find that magic bullet that enables us to do far more. um, And for example, be in new markets without having to have, uh, you know, 30 people on the ground and a physical operation on the ground to make it work. Um, So um, technology's helping us get there for sure mm. um, and it's, it's finding the right model that enables that.
0: So still a lot of challenges on your plate I guess.
1: Yeah there's still a lot of challenges for sure um, and uh, you know those are sort of even those challenges right now are being put on the back burner is it's more of a crisis management time as we go through the ups and downs of the current pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the business impact of that.
0: Mm-hmm. What would be the one recommendation you would give to other entrepreneurs out there?
1: I would probably say take take time out to reflect more and scenario plan more on on major on any financial decision that's over twenty thousand dollars to really Look at why you're making that decision and to challenge it at 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 every sort of rational and emotional level, probably more emotional than than a lot of entrepreneurs, including myself, have egos. So sometimes I think we do things like enter Singapore, um, for example, um, more driven by ego and emotion rather than driven by uh, rational decision making. so. I would say really take time out to reflect on significant decisions, mm-hmm. uh, and or, or have you know have a mentor or a coach who can help you do that because um, I think it's uh, if I've made a lot of mistakes, of course, over the last twenty years, um, and most of the, most of them are, have been being too gun ho and investing in things too early or without the contractual obligations on the other side of that investment that would really secure them. Um, I mean, all within, 90% within this realm of market research in the business. Um, but with the value of hindsight, I look back now and think, what was I thinking? What, why did I do that? And it always comes back to ego.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It, it always comes back, it was exciting. It would be nice to say I had an office here. And even the office I chose was glamorous and a great position. I didn't need to be there. I could have been in, you know, a warehouse district and made it far smaller and invested far little and tested the water on uh, a much more gradual way. All of that would have been very rational. Sort of all the, sort of the things I would have advised a client to do. But, uh, <laughs> my own decision-making. So, um, yeah.
0: Okay, well, that's a great conclusion. Hire coach. Excellent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it, it's probably the entrepreneur's biggest fault line, right is that they don't have generally great sounding boards. They have people who uh, want to, to, they have people who feedback when things are positive, hmm. and they're not going to feedback when things are negative, uh, whether it's their own staff, whether it's their, a lot of clients will only tell you, uh, will only give you good news. Um, you know, people ask me when I have an event, people say, How was your event? I said, Well, I don't know. All the people who gave me feedback were nice, but I'm worried about all the ones who said nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. So it's um, that, that sounding board is so critical. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you have to have a certain ego to be able to walk in a room and build business, um, but also that same ego can. Um, can be your
0: uh, misfortune also. All right, thank you. How can people contact you?
1: Uh, they can find us at Simigo.com or um, ask, as we're a market research company. ASK at Simigo.com will also reach me or my name uh, at Simigo.com. Excellent, thank you Richard for
0: your time today. Not at all, thanks for, uh, thanks for the interview. Thank you all for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback about today's interview. So if you have any questions for my guest or for myself, or if you'd like to be a guest yourself, send an email to contact at or reach out on LinkedIn. See you next time. Bye-bye.